Hi, Hill City. We're so glad that you are with us. I know you're sick of hearing that, but you're with us today in spirit on this Sunday morning or Saturday evening or whenever you've chosen to take some time to listen to the service. Um, we just hope that you are with other people that you've gathered in a watch party or you've uh, grabbed a family member or even a neighbor and taken some time set aside to be in community with people. I want to start a little differently than we have for the past few weeks. Uh, as a leadership team, we have been talking a lot about the importance of silence and solitude. And I think sometimes, if you're anything like me, that sitting down to watch service or to uh, participate in this digital way can be as frantic as it can be to get everyone loaded up to go to church on a Sunday morning. Um, and so sometimes it really is helpful to take a minute, prepare our hearts in silence, and remember why we are here, why we have set aside this time, and really prepare to connect with God and to hear what he has to say to us through his word. So we're going to take a couple minutes now, and if you're with other people, you can just close your eyes. I know it might feel a little awkward. You can pray internally, you can just reconnect with how you're feeling and remember that God is with you. Let's pray. This prayer is by Douglas McKelvey. Christ our King, our world is overtaken by unexpected calamity and by a host of fears. We turn to you, God, in this season. You were not ashamed to share in our sufferings, Jesus. Let us now be willing to share in yours, serving as your visible witnesses in this broken world. Hear now these words, you children of God, and be greatly encouraged. The Lord's throne in heaven is occupied. His rule is eternal. And his good purposes on earth will be forever accomplished. You are the king of ages, O Christ, and history is held in your Father's hands. Amen. As a church community, we have been corporately wrestling with some very difficult questions. And one of them is the question of what it means to be the church during this very strange year. What does it mean to be the church when we don't have a building? What does it mean to be the church when we can't gather regularly or have all of our normal programming? What does it mean to be the church when the world is erupting with us versus them debates and when a shallow grasp on suffering affects our ability to sit and be still in the midst of all that's going on in our world. These are not easy questions, but they are the ones that we have been wrestling with as a leadership team, as a church as a whole, and we've continued to pray and ponder them. In a way, these questions of motivation and direction and vision are what have prompted our new series on the book of Acts. Because if we want to figure out what the church is really about, what better place to look 
than this book of Acts where the singular history of the early church is recorded. It covers about 30 years after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus. And it shows how the church moved from being a small group to a group numbering in the thousands all around the Mediterranean world. And we know that we talked last week about how worshiping Jesus passionately was a core value then and now, and how you see that throughout all of the history of the church and throughout the book of Acts. We talked about how worship of God was centered in the temple in the Old Testament, and then how in the new the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, and we believers became mini temples carrying around God's presence. So now we as the church, as followers of this Middle Eastern God-man, Jesus, have unrestricted access to the throne room of God. And as a community, we can live embodying his presence to the world around us. This is an amazing truth, but it doesn't stop there. This brings us to our second Hill City value, that we proclaim the good news of Jesus unapologetically. The Holy Spirit empowers the church to fulfill the final command of Jesus to go and bring the gospel to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And we see that this group, which before had been a group that was drawing inward, inward, inward around the figure of Jesus, following him, listening to his teaching, is now a group that's propelled out, out, out into the world by the power of the Holy Spirit. And they're sent out with a very important message. But what is this message? What is the gospel? I think sometimes we hear words so often that they they become white noise to us. Uh, You know, a bit like that favorite show you replay in the background as you work on things or the music you listen to in your car. We are a culture obsessed with noise, right? But even words can become mere noise to us. And if you've been in the church long enough, words like the gospel are ones you're sure you know, but would have a hard time defining if somebody asked you to explain it. So what is the gospel? Let's take a moment and define the term. If you are on Facebook watching right now, go ahead and write in the comment box how you would define the gospel. What are the most important parts of it? What are the words you think of related to it? As you write, I'm gonna explain a little more background on the word itself before we get into the meaning. A long time ago, some Anglo-Saxons talked about the word Godspell. And this is a word from which we get our word, gospel. Godspell means good story. And they were translating the term euangelion, which you find in the Greek manuscripts of the New Testament. This term means great announcement, good news, or glad tidings. But it wasn't the type of announcement or news that we think of today. It wasn't a hot off the presses, delivery to your doorstep, complete with a comic strip and editorials. 
It was actually used of special royal announcements, often when an emperor would take his seat on the throne, when an emperor had stepped down or died and then a new emperor was enthroned. And it's hard to think of any modern day equivalents, though we do have announcements we send by mail, uh, whether it's for weddings or the birth of a new baby or for a graduation. But it's likely that it is the Old Testament as well as the Roman concept that the book of Acts and the four Gospels have in mind when they use the term. Because in these books, we see Jesus portrayed as an ambassador, a bringer of good news. In Isaiah 52, a messenger brings news of God's peace and his personal return to Zion. In Isaiah 6, a special anointed one, that's the definition or meaning behind the term Messiah, by the way, is sent to proclaim good news to the poor, freedom for the captives, healing and comfort for the poor and brokenhearted. In fact, the book of Luke chapter 4 is where Jesus reads this passage from Isaiah 6 to begin his ministry. But what was the good news? Hopefully you've typed something in the box by now. Well, we know by reading Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that Jesus brought news of the Messiah of the kingdom and salvation for all who believe. Did any of you have those in your answers? I'm sure somebody put forgiveness of sins, uh, Jesus dying on the cross, all sorts of options there. The great announcement is that God is coming back to Zion, the city of Jerusalem, in the form of a man. The long-awaited Messiah is here, and he's not just a political leader. He's also the son of man from Daniel. He's the suffering servant from Isaiah, and he is God himself, capable of forgiving sins and healing the broken. This Messiah is establishing his kingdom, a spiritual kingdom that is God's rule and reign on this earth, a reign that won't be finalized until Jesus comes again, but that even now is growing through his followers, those who have trusted in him as their Lord, trusted in his resurrection and his ability to pay for our sins as a sacrifice. This is the good news that we see proclaimed all over Acts. In fact, if you've been reading along with us in a reading plan through Acts, you've already read six different accounts of the gospel being shared just in the first eight chapters. We see them sharing the good news with crowds, the good news before authorities, the good news with certain individuals, and we're actually going to take a look at each of those in brief today. So in Acts chapter 2, we talked about this last week, the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes on believers. Peter stands up and preaches about how Jesus has fulfilled the Old Testament expectations and that as verse 36 says, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the crowd moved by the gospel through the Holy Spirit asked what they should do about this message, Peter's answer is in verse 38. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off 
for all whom the Lord our God will call. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John heal a lame man in the name of Jesus, and they share the good news with a crowd that gathers in the temple. In verses 14 and 15, you disowned the holy and righteous one and asked that a murderer, that's Barabbas they're referring to, be released to you. You killed the author of life, but God raised him from the dead. And in verse 19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Because of the crowd, Peter and John are taken before the authorities and the high priests. And in Acts 4, they preach the gospel again, giving an account of it to the men who were responsible for handing Jesus over to Pilate. In verses 10 through 12, they say, It is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. No other name. And they say this to Caiaphas, to Annas, to the Sanhedrin who was at that midnight trial with Jesus. And they are astonished, bewildered by these men who are so bold and yet seemingly uneducated. And they're unable to respond. In Acts 5, the same authorities are jealous as more and more people join the early church. And so they put the apostles in jail. But an angel releases them. And what do they do? They go straight back to the temple courts to preach. And then they're taken before the priests again, and Peter takes the chance to share the good news. Peter and the apostles reply, this is verses 29 through 32 of chapter 5, We must obey God rather than human beings. The God of our ancestors raised Jesus from the dead, whom you killed by hanging on the cross. God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior, that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given to those who obey him. They are beaten and then released, and yet the punishment and imprisonment does not stop them, because chapter 5 ends in verse 42 with these words, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. They never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They never stopped. They never stopped. They never stopped. In Acts chapter 7, Stephen, a Greek-speaking Jew, is made leader, a leader in the church, and his debates with other Jews gets him in trouble. He's taken to the authorities, lied about, put on trial. He gives an incredible explanation about how the whole Old Testament has been leading to the moment where Jesus died on the cross. But his ending accusation of their complicity in Jesus' death is not taken well. He's taken away to be stoned, a brutal, really hard death. But before he dies, he gives one last testimony. In verse 56, he says, Look, I see heaven open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. We're not done yet. Hang in there. 
The good news, now spurred by this persecution and the death of Stephen, moves out from Jerusalem both geographically and ethnically. In Acts 8, the persecution of a man named Saul, who's driving the church from their homes, drives them into Judea and Samaria and the surrounding areas, but they keep spreading the good news. Philip, another Greek-speaking Jew, shares the gospel with the rejected Samaritans, and they come to know Jesus. In the same chapter of Acts 8, he shares the good news with an Ethiopian official who is a eunuch. And when the Holy Spirit tells him to, he runs up alongside his chariot and asks him, what are you reading? This man is interested in God's word, and Philip uses the scroll he has, fortuitously put there by God, uh, from the book of Isaiah. And Philip gets to share who the person is that Isaiah is talking about. Verse 35 says, Then Philip began with that very passage of scripture and told him about the good news of Jesus. The man is baptized and he goes on his way. We never hear about him again. But he likely took that good news, that great announcement of God coming to earth to his people in Ethiopia. Stop and ponder this for a minute. The Samaritans, we know, if you have any background in uh, reading the Bible, were a rejected people. They were seen as sort of half-breed idolaters by the Jews. And they were rejected by God's people. But they accept the good news. The Ethiopian eunuch represents both a foreigner and someone who was badly disfigured in the minds of the Jews. He was basically sexually other, non-binary if you want to use a modern term, and he would have been rejected from entering the temple. But the good news reaches him. It's amazing to see how God works, how he spreads the good news, not just geographically, but draws the outsiders into the fold and makes his church of every race, every gender, and he continues to build them through the message of the gospel. The Holy Spirit brings them to the fold through that simple declaration. The kingdom has come. Jesus is Lord. Repent and be baptized. The gospel has disrupted the status quo, and God has done what he promised from the very beginning. He's provided a path for everyone who believes to come back into relationship with him. Man, that's just the first eight chapters that we read. And forget Hamilton. If I were Lin-Manuel Miranda, I know what historical account I'd want to write my next musical about. I don't have the first idea how to write songs, but there has to be some potential in the repeated patterns there, right? You know, the gospel moves out through the power of the Holy Spirit, and Peter preaches. The authorities get angry, Peter preaches. The apostles are beaten, imprisoned. The church still preaches. Stephen is mobbed, stoned, and with his last breath, he preaches. Saul drives the church out, and they keep preaching. Plot twist, he's going to be preaching. Everywhere they go, to everyone they meet, Samaritans they don't know, the eunuch on the street, they never stop. They never stop. They keep on preaching. What if the same 
could be said of us? What if the gospel message was so urgent, so imperative, that we didn't get caught up in the overthinking or the fear of rejection or the debates that are currently driving discussion? What if COVID happened, but the church kept preaching? Politicians fought over a response, but the church kept preaching. What if we embodied the hope of Jesus and the kingdom of God in an irresistible way, loving neighbor and foe alike, serving the poor, fighting injustice, endorsing this good news of salvation with our very lives, pointing to the salvation that comes by the name of Jesus alone. There's a missiologist, Roland Allen, and he wrote a book way long ago, 1927. And in it, he asked this simple question. Why did the early church grow so fast? There's obviously spiritual reasons we can come up with. The Holy Spirit was empowering them for the purposes in history. God needed to do that to establish his church. But he proposes three reasons we can find from that book that I think are still valid today in how the church should be spreading the good news. Number one, we spread it by the attractive life of the community. Number two, by spontaneous evangelism. And number three, by planting of new churches. So number one, the attractive life of the community. Are we a church that's marked by joy and generosity and solidarity that includes diverse individuals like the early church did and that loves each other well? That's what's going to look attractive to the outside world. Do we practice spontaneous evangelism? Not some sort of evangelism based on if you think you have enough training or you got a degree or you have the title that makes it seem like you work for a church. But Alan actually points to the evangelism done by common members of the church, sharing the good news with the people around them, their co-workers, their families, their neighbors, as the Holy Spirit prompts them. The Holy Spirit told Philip, go talk to that guy. And he did. And it resulted in the Ethiopian coming to know Jesus. How many times do we hear that prompting and ignore it because we're so afraid we won't have the answers people are looking for? Instead of knowing that Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, is going to give us every answer we need. Number three, the planting of new churches. The establishment of multiplying house-gathered communities focus less on structure than on the manifestation of God's presence in the world. This is exactly why the first in the first two centuries of the early church we see expansive growth. As what started out as a sect of Judaism becomes eventually the most widespread held religion in Rome. We have record early on of Roman officials unsure of how to deal with this explosion of belief in this Jewish man who was killed like a criminal. They're perplexed at these Christians who value women and children, who sing songs together, who promise together not to cheat or lie or steal. 
who care for the poor and the sick, who share meals in a strange way and talk about the body and the blood. They don't know what to do with them, but the church keeps growing and sharing the message. The kingdom has come. Jesus is Lord. Repent and be baptized. And pretty soon, it's the predominant belief across the empire. What if we lived in such a way that the world didn't know what to do with us? In a good way, I mean, you know. What if every time someone had a reason to ask you, why aren't you scared? Why do you care about this? Why do you care about me? Our answer was to share the good news of Jesus unapologetically. The kingdom has come. Jesus is Lord. Repent and be baptized. Join this community of people who love each other deeply, who evidence the presence of God, who are committed from the people who seem official leaders of the church to the people who are just the so-called common members to sharing the good news because Jesus calls us all brother and sister. And what if we didn't stop? What if we didn't stop? Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, even as I'm speaking these words, you're convicting my heart about how often, how often I have not preached good, good news unapologetically. How often I've let fear of not having the right answer, of not being able to be persuasive enough Stop me from sharing what might seem like foolishness to the rest of the world. And Lord, I'm convicted too of the times when I haven't lived your gospel. When I haven't lived loving my neighbor or loving my enemy. Or seeking to take care of the poor and the vulnerable. Or seeking to find justice for people who are different from me. Lord, I repent. I pray that we would all repent that we corporately repent of our sin, Lord, of being ashamed of the gospel, of not believing it powerful enough to change lives. Lord, we thank you that through the good news of Jesus, we have grace, that you forgive us, that we are your children. I pray for anyone who's listening to this message who is not a child of yours, Lord that even in this moment that the Holy Spirit is speaking to their heart, that you would prompt them to ask questions, to find the people around them who are believers, to talk to us at Hill City. Lord, I pray you would prompt them to just trust in the good news that the kingdom has come. Jesus is Lord. And that they can be repent, that they can repent, be forgiven, and be baptized as a sign of their new life in you. Lord, we thank you that you have kept us as a church through this very difficult time. And we pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would drive us not just inward to love each other, but outward to the people around us. We thank you so much that you will do that, that that has been the work of the church from the beginning and will continue to be. Thank you for every person who calls Hill City home, Lord, but more importantly, for the global church, Lord, united through your son. 
empower us today, Lord, to share the gospel unapologetically through the way we live our lives and through the words we speak. In Jesus' name, amen.